0: Well, what's up, Resonate Church? Get good to see you this morning. Hey, we want to welcome all the campuses that are joining us, including our online campus. If you're at home or wherever you are, we're so glad that you're tuning in. I want to throw out a special welcome to our guests who are checking out our church through the Explore God series, where we're tackling seven really essential questions about Christianity. And Just I honor your faith and I I honor your curiosity and just your humility to be here. And so wherever you're joining us online or here in one of our spaces, so grateful that you are here. And today we are addressing a really tenuous question. Uh, uh, It's filled with tension because it's one thing like last week where we studied that Jesus is God or that he's one of the gods. But what if we were to say that Jesus is the only God? He's the only God, He's the only way, He's the only truth, and He is the only Savior. And that you can't come to the Father except through Him. Now, that seems rather quite exclusive and narrow. And that is what the society will say to Christians and say, well, Christianity is so narrow, how arrogant could you be to say, your way is the only way? How do you know the truth and everybody else in the world are ignorant of it. And this is why the lady on the video, as the part of the bumper says, you know, hey, um, th- when they find out what I'm about, and then they don't want to do anything with me. And so you will have alienated friends, you will have friends that will judge you, you will have friends that will leave you based on what you believe. And so many of you are quiet about your faith. And, 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 and I'll tell you why this is so important. I'll tell you why this is so contentious. Because in our culture, uh, one of the highest values of the culture is um, uh, pluralistic society. What that means is that the value that is the apex above them all is inclusivity and peace. That we care about everybody being a part. We care about all peace and religion can be a divisive nature to that peace. And you might even say that artists and poets have written about it, talked about it. And many of us have sang about it. In fact, one of the greatest anthems um, that we've sung um, to create a pluralistic utopia would be a song that John Lennon wrote called Imagine from 1971. And I know you've sung this song, Filipinos. I know that you have. <laughs> you love it, right? And But, you know, this is a song that most of us have sung in, in karaoke or whatever. Um, and we love it. And yet, this is really the anthem At the center of it is this hope that there's no division and even religion, too. Let's read it. It says, imagine there's no heaven. Uh, It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion, too. Imagine all the people Living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us, and the world will be as one. Now, that all sounds great initially, but here's the implication. That religion as a whole is a threat to peace in society because it holds exclusive views. And in some ways, in a sense, they're right. Because once you hold the exclusive view and to say, well, this is the only way, this is the only truth, this is the only way that you are to find salvation, all other way are wrong, it could breed a sense of superiority that if you don't follow the way that I follow God, then you are far from God, you're not like me, and you're not better than me. And therefore, religion in history has created strife and division and separation and it's even led to enmity and perhaps even a holy war. As to say in the Middle East, my God wants this. No, my God says this. And so they're throwing absolutes at each other exclusively saying, I'm right. My God is better. And so in a society like ours, in a pluralistic society, we want peace, inclusivity, in a divided world. So the question is, How can we live that way? How can we live in peace? And I believe the Bible has a solution that actually embraces the narrowness of this exclusive gospel that we preach here at Resonate Church. Um, If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, would you turn to 1 John chapter 4? 1 John is near the end of your Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, it's okay. We're going to actually project it on the screen so that you can follow with us, but just know that... um, each and every Sunday, I don't preach uh, the opinion of man, uh, but I, I try to teach on what the Word of God says. And this is the hope, that you would know the Word of God because we believe it's living and alive, and it could change your life today. And so if you were, would, and if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? And I'll pray once again that the Holy Spirit preach a better sermon than the one that you're about to hear from me today. First uh, John chapter 4 Verses 1 through 10, this is the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves have been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is the word of the Lord for this great Sunday morning. All God's people said, amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Now, the question still remains, how could we be... Living in an inclusive and peaceful society. And I believe that in this world, there are three hopes. It's really reduced to three hopes. Two are the hopes of the culture, and one is the hope of Christianity. And I might humbly propose that the third hope, which is the Christian hope, will bring the ultimate unity and inclusiveness to promote the kind of peace that we long for in this world. But let's study all the hopes. First, Hope is this. It's the world's hope to see religion fade. They want religion to fade, and you see this in John Lennon's Imagine Song. In a pluralistic society, hope for religion to fade, to be weak, and to just simply disappear is the ultimate hope. And you see, for decades, the secular and Western world believed that religion was going to fade. With the rise of technology and science, they really thought uh, science is the establishment of observable truth. And so once we start knowing more and more and more in science, and more we have the truth, more or less need we'll have in the dependence of religion. And even technology, as technology grows and will be embedded in technology, it will get rid of the longing that we have that religion actually fills. And yet, this was the hope. In fact, this is what John Lennon himself said. He said in 1971 in the interview, he said, Christianity will vanish and shrink. He says, word, the Beatles are more popular than Jesus now, is what he says. Right? But the reality is that has not happened at all. In fact, religion is on the rise. And I would even say, in particular, two religions in the world is growing rapidly. Take a look at this graph for a second, and I'll show you from the Pew Research Center, which is a very reputable scholarly a statistics organization, says from 19, um, 2010 to 2050, this is the trajectory of the growth of Christianity, that it starts in 2.17 billion people in 2010, and we're on the rise, and eventually in 2050, we will see 2.0. Nine, two billion. That is 700 million more Christians in 40 years. And that's massive. It's growing. You realize that in Africa, we have seen an entire continent go from 9% to 50% Christians in the whole continent. Wow. And then we also see in the last 100 years, the nation of Korea, that little tiny South Koreans have gone from 1% Christian to 40% Christian in their country, And we see this in China, too, right now. There's an underground movement that is happening there that is beautiful and it's growing. We also see here, though, that in the next three decades, Islam will be the fastest-growing religion among all the other ma- major religions, according to this research, almost getting close to Christianity. Now, here's my point. That nobody really who knows what they're talking about is saying that religion is going to fade. And and that they're going to be obsolete because of the growth of technology and science. And that is the reason why some of the governments, knowing that sometimes religion can divide, try to snuff it out by regulating religion. And yet, do you know that when you and societies and nations have tried to regulate religions, the religion only grew? You know that reality? Well, here's a great great study case for this in history. The great historical example is when the communists took over China in 1940, and they came in as the regime. They said, no more religion. The way we're going to get rid of Christianity is we're going to get rid of all the Western Christian missionaries out of this country. You are out. And so they persecuted them and kicked them out. And they said, there it goes. No more Christianity. We can live in peace. And guess what happened? All the Western missionaries moved out, But the indigenous Chinese Christians grew and they dug deeper and they went underground and they started meeting in homes. They started spreading even more rapidly than ever before. Now, here's the question. Why won't religion go away when we try to weaken it, when society tries to weaken it? Well, there's a hint in verse 1 here I want you to look at. It says, Beloved, do not believe in every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone... Into the world. Now, John is the author here, and he's talking about religious teachers and prophets. So why doesn't he say, test the prophets or test the teachers? But instead, he says here, test the spirits. Why would he say that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the spirit world is something that we cannot deny that exists along with this material world. In fact, John Stott, the great theologian and scholar, says, you must not make the mistake to think religious diversity is merely an intellectual or cognitive phenomenon. And what he's saying is this verse, as he's commenting on this verse, is saying that beyond the range of intellectual views, there is a spiritual realm. There's a transcendent realm that every human being is seeking it and sensing it, and wanting to connect to it. Every human being will worship something, every single one, and will make something an ultimate concern, joy, or desire. And the main point here is that the religious impulse is not just an intellectual thing. They need to worship. They need to worship something or to have Some spiritual experience is an inevitable part of human nature. And the more and more you try to snuff that out, the more and more we will have a growing thirst for it. Do you realize even my atheist friends who are dear and beloved, I talk to them, meet with them, and they're friends of mine. And yet they do yoga. Like they do yoga and they do the spiritual kind, you know, and even them, they say, well, there's no God, and there's no, not only a way to prove God, there's some agnostics, but there are people who are like, there's no such God, but they still believe in the spirits, and they want to somehow connect to the spirits. And here's why you and I could never snuff out religion, because in this material is a deep groaning for spiritual things, always. You see, if you are here today, and you are checking out Christianity, and you're curious about it, um, I would say you understand what I'm talking about. Because your curiosity, your investigation, your maybe there is something beyond this world. That sense is the very sense that I'm talking about. It's the spirit world. And you can't snuff that out. That's part of the human reality. And so that is a thirst for transcendence. It, it's beyond the material. But here's the second hope to see uh, from the culture, which is to see all religion as equal. And they would say, well, if religion was all equal, then we'll solve all the problem. And do you remember what the video, that gal closes, that bumper video by saying, there's no one that monopolizes one truth about anything. A lot of religions say the same thing, but they're just going through different paths, right? And the assumption is this, that if we all agree that all religion are equal and valid paths to God, then maybe, then just maybe, we will have peace. But could I just humbly suggest to you that will never work? Again, here's a hint of why it won't work in this text in verse five. It says, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. And the question is, who are they, John refers to? They are the critics of Christianity. Interestingly, John the author here says that the critics are not irreligious people, but they're actually religious people as to say that they also are in spirit and they're speaking and seeking the spirit and that they have some kind of faith even though they are uh, antagonistic towards the Christian faith. In a sense, everyone is religious. Even John Lennon is religious. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, let me tell you. People say, let's all agree that all religions are equal and valid paths to God. After all, you know, no one is so arrogant to think that they have a monopoly on the truth. So they often share an illustration, which you probably heard of. It kind of goes like this. Let me show you a graphic and an image. They say, all religious people are like blind people. They're blind men. And the first religious guy who's blind touches an elephant and says, hey, this creature he touches the trunk of the elephant and says, this creature is quite like a snake. He's flexible and wiggly and elephant must be like a snake. And the second guy who's touching the tusk of the elephant says, no way, bro, you are wrong. You know, um, he is more like a sharp, rigid um, device, like a spear. And the third guy, wrapping his arms around the leg of an elephant, say, nope, you both are wrong. I am right. An elephant is like a tree, like, kind of like a stump. And the fourth guy who's touching the flappy ear of an elephant says, no, this is floppy and thin, just like a fan. You are wrong. The fifth guy says, no, you're wrong. You're all wrong because I am touching something that is like a wall. It will not move. It is stiff. It is flat. And the last guy says, no, I'll be honest with you. Everybody else is wrong. I am right. I'm touching something uh, and this, this creature is just like what I'm touching. It's more like a rope. Now, they share this illustration. And as they are arguing, we realize that all of them are both right and wrong. They're both right and wrong. They all see in part, but nobody sees the whole elephant. So the illustration concludes like this. You see, religions are all like the blind men. All religions see part of the spiritual truth. Nobody could see the whole thing. Therefore, no one should insist that they have the entire truth. It's what society says. Well, Leslie Newbegin, who was a British missionary to India for many, many years, he wrote a book called The Gospel in the Pluralist Society, and he explains how he got this illustration thrown at him all the time, and one day, it just suddenly hit him. He said the only way you could know that none of the blind men had a grip on the entire reality of the elephant is if you only assume that you are the one who could see the entire thing. He says the only way that all religion are blind is if you alone say in the world of blind people you're the only one that could see. Do you see what he's saying? And he goes on to say, so he concludes that the only way you could possibly know that every religion in the world only sees part of the truth is if you assume that you have the whole truth, which is the very thing you say that nobody has. So Leslie Newbegin concludes by saying how arrogant it is to say that all religions are equal. He goes on to say, quote, there is an appearance of humility at first in the assertion or protestation that the truth is much greater than any one of us could grasp, but it is in fact an arrogant claim to a kind of knowledge which is superior to the knowledge which is available to fallible human beings. We have to ask, what is the vantage point from which you claim to be able to relativize all absolute claims which these different scriptures make? So you see, when you say, Nobody has a superior take on spiritual reality. That in and of itself is a superior take on spirituality. And so when you say nobody should convert anybody to your view of religion, that is a view of religion that you want all of us to convert to. You see, there's no way for you to know that all religions are equal unless you assume the kind of knowledge you say that nobody has. If that's so, how could you have it? That's the reality. You see, it just doesn't work. You know, it's arrogant and self-refuting. It looks like humility initially. But at best, it is intellectually uh, short-sighted. At worst, it's intellectually arrogant. And so most importantly, I, I want us to understand this out of this point, that that in and of itself is a very exclusive view. See, everyone has exclusive beliefs. Even John Lennon, who wants to reunite the world. No, all peace, no religion, no hell, no heaven. You know, he said, let's not divide. You know, no religion too. Do you see? He has very exclusive views. And by the way, he says, I hope you could join us. You know what that is? Evangelism. That is straight up evangelism. He's like, I hope you could join us too. And we have no idea, but we're singing the song like lullabies. You know, we're singing along with it. Like, I hope you could join us to Christians who are saying, I hope there's no heaven or hell, no God, no religion too. And we're singing this without knowing what we're actually singing. You see, he has an exclusive view, and he is evangelizing too, just like we are. Therefore, here's what I want us to understand, okay? What really matters is not who has exclusive beliefs, because everybody has them, but which exclusive view or belief produces a loving, most inclusive, peaceful solution in a divided world? Which one? And here's what I want to submit to you, that I believe humbly that you would hear me out, and I want to make a case for it, that our hope is to see a better gospel, a better gospel. If the gospel means good news, which Christians actually uh, hijacked from good news, evangelion means good news. We believe we have the best news that is in Jesus. And what I want to do is in a few moments just Propose to you the uniqueness of the Christian gospel that is very different than all other religions, because it is those specific features that are unique that actually is the solution to bring about the kind of peace and inclusion that we want to see in this world. Now, understand that Christianity shares a lot of same principles and beliefs like all other religions. You know, like you know, love your neighbors and feed the poor. And, you know, um, be radically loving and, and forgive others. These are all principles that I think many religions share, but I don't think it's, are those principles are the ones that actually will bring about unity and get rid of division in this world. In fact, it is the uniqueness of Christianity that does. So let me show you first what this text says about three things about the uniqueness of Christianity and how those three specific things actually promote the kind of, inclusion, and peace that we're looking for in this world. First uniqueness of Christianity is this, the deity of Jesus, the deity of Jesus. What that means is that the founder of our faith is God himself, unlike the founder of all other world religion is a person. Verse two, by this you know the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, I want you to notice here Jesus Christ has come. He has come. It doesn't say he was born even though he was born, but he has come as to say that before he was born, he came from somewhere else. And you see right here, this is an implicit claim that the Bible makes absolutely explicit elsewhere that though every other religion says a founder of their religion is a human being, Christianity says The founder of Christianity, who is Jesus, is actually God himself, and he has come from heaven into this world. Now, that's the first uniqueness, the deity of Jesus. And if you are in question of maybe wanting to discover more about that, last week, uh, we preached on it, and so I would implore you to check that out. But secondly, here's the second uniqueness of Christianity. It's the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is so unique. It says, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, here's the question, class. Why put it like that? Why in the flesh? Why is that important? Because this is another idea in which Christianity is so different from other religions. Because other religions, and if you study world religion, now I know like many of us who went to college studied it, we just didn't pay attention. So here it is. Here's the recap. Every other religion will say that the purpose of salvation is to take you out of this wretched world. Let's get out of this disgusting place so if you are a part of like more of an eastern religion they say the reality to which this world is is all a figment of an imagination that is we are able to dip into a brand new sense of consciousness and layers of consciousness this evil world will no longer exist and we will be transported to nirvana or another spiritual realm to which we really really are our true self is that so we need to escape that God will help us to be saved from this evil place. And the Western world will say, just like the Greeks, and they would say, no, 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 no. The physical realm is real, but it's awful. And so if you do good enough things, if you follow God, if you worship him and do a number of things that he tells you to do, then maybe you'll be saved and he will eject you or take you from this pitiful world that's going to pot and he will remove you and go take you into the celestial world where it's perfect and good where you'll never ever get a, a well done steak ever again. That's, that's the hope right? Well listen but Christianity says something different follow along because it says at the birth of Jesus God himself received a body and at the resurrection of Jesus God himself received a renewed body And through it, we see that the redemptive work of God is not to escape the flesh, not to press the eject button and like take off and go to heaven, but his goal is to renew it. His goal is to make it new. That the new Jerusalem and the new earth that is coming is this earth being reshaped and reformed and and made new once again in his perfection. And in the end, there will be no more death, no more disease, no more poverty, no more injustice, that everything else that is broken in this world will, will one day be made whole for the glory of God. See, that's the hope. That's the resurrection. That's very different from all other religion who's trying to get us to escape from this awful place. Here's the third uniqueness of Christianity, salvation by grace alone. You see, in all other religions, we're told that if you want to be saved, you have to draw closer to God. And what that means is you have to obey Him, and you have to climb up the celestial, like the spiritual ladder, by following rules, by obeying him, by climbing up this spiritual ladder to get near him. And maybe perhaps if you get near him enough, then he will save you, and maybe he'll make you a God, and maybe he will restore you. And therefore, the Muslim faith... There's lots of things that you must do, but in particular, the five pillars of faith you must do to climb up to God. And when we see the Buddhist faith, we see the four stages of enlightenment where we, through the changing of our conscience, try to dip into a realm in which ultimately, if we climb and obey and do all these meditative chants, one day we will end up in nirvana, that we'll join. We'll join a state of consciousness with God. And in the Hindu faith, we see a caste system where wherever you are, you have to work your way through reincarnation. That whatever form you're in today, be better. So you could be somebody better, then something better, something better. Ultimately, you too will enter into nirvana where God is, and you too could one day be a God. And maybe if you don't believe in all the moral religions, maybe perhaps you believe in the moral life. Where you think that if you do good enough things, then good things will happen to you. It's kind of like A karma that you believe, or you think if I'm just like a good enough person that I don't do awful things, and I just live my life in a good way, then one day God will just save you. That's the hope. And all of that concept is based on you doing the work so that you could get close to God in the hopes that one day he'll save you. But that's not what the Bible says at all. That's not what the gospel says at all. Instead, the gospel says, You and I cannot climb to God. And therefore, God had to climb down to us. Jesus came for us because we couldn't climb to him. He had to come for you and for me. Verse 10, in this is love. Look at how God defines love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. How? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God comes and sacrificially suffers for people who don't love him, who are rebelling against him. So here, the Bible tells us that Jesus is not merely a a teacher that shows you a way of salvation. Jesus then is the savior who actually lives a life that you couldn't and dies a death that you should have so that he could save us. If we put our faith in him, if we believe what he's done for us, then not by our merit, but his merit. You see, Christianity is the only religion that says, you're not saved by what you do or what you do through your life. We are only saved by the merits of somebody else's life, and his name is Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus. It's the only way we're saved. And I've once heard a silly illustration, but I think makes the point really, really well. That this illustration goes where a Christian dies after living a productive life and goes to heaven. And he stopped at the gates, And Peter says, you have to earn a thousand points before you enter into heaven. He's like, a thousand points? I've never heard this from the Bible. He's like, okay, but here it goes. Okay, Well, you know, when I was a kid, I was born into a Christian family. And all I started is just like... I was loving God from the very beginning. And then all throughout elementary school, Sunday school, I never missed class. And I went to Iwana and memorized 300 verses that I could recall on command. And not only that, I went to all the camps. And I I remember sharing two times uh, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And two of my friends came from my school to church. And then when I went to high school, I started a Christian club where there I, I started evangelizing a lot more. I saw more people come to faith. When I went to college, I majored in religion. Religion so that I could actually be a missionary there. I met my wife and we had kids I had three kids those three kids the first one became a pastor The second one married a pastor and the third one is doing nonprofit work for the glory of God And when I came back from the mission field I served the church as an elder and I faithfully gave and tithed and prayed and loved people And this is what I did all of my life. And here I am Peter. How am I doing? How many points did I accrued? and Peter says you got One point. Like, wait, a thousand points? I only got one point? Like, one point. 999 to go. What else have you done? And he said, oh, Jesus, have mercy. And Peter says, you're welcome in. (laughs) (laughs) Because no matter what he did, no matter what you do, there's no way that we could accrue enough obedience to be worthy of. Eternity. And the only way we could get in is if, if outside mercy and outside grace will come in and be applied to you. And if you would just simply confess and say, Jesus, have mercy on me, he'll always say yes. He'll never turn you down. And so salvation by grace alone, amen? amen. So then, so what? Here's the question, so what? Uh, how does the uniqueness of Christianity, okay, Saved by grace, the resurrection of Jesus and the deity of Jesus, how could could that bring real benefits to the world? So what? Okay? First, being saved by grace alone means that it leads to humility. It leads to humility. While the Bible says that you're not saved by your performance, you know that other religions say that you are saved by performance. And therefore, you feel superior over other people. So self-righteousness and superiority lead to oppression, division, and enmity, and holy war, while other groups look down on each other. But I'll tell you how the gospel brings about a humility in all of us. But the gospel is the only faith I know, and that leads people to see that other people who don't believe in the gospel, you could actually believe that they are actual better people than you. Do you know that? That they could actually be better people than you because you and I are not saved because we're wise, because we climbed the ladder. We're not saved because we're good. We're not saved because you were more kinder and more generous. You remember the gospel says because you couldn't climb the ladder, Jesus climbed that ladder for you and gave you that credit upon yourself to which we receive Jesus' life and he takes our payment. And that is the essence of the gospel. And therefore, you're not saved unless you admit that you and I are not better than anybody else in this world. Nobody. That the person in prison today requires exactly the amount of grace as you do and I do today. That we don't need less, we need just as much. And therefore, when we look at people in the world that don't believe what we believe, we could even assume that they might be and often are better people than us. And that creates humility because you're not saved by your life. You're saved by Jesus' life and through your confession only. And I'm certain by that my Hindu neighbor, Mohinder, whom I love, who I care about, who I look across and he always says hi. He always beat me in saying hi first. I'm like, Ugh. I'm a Christian. I want to say hi first. And he's always like beating me to it. He's like, hey, Ryan. I'm like, hey, Moender. And you know what? He's the guy that is like so kind, so generous, so patient. You know, when there are cars parked right in front of the curb in front of my house, do you know I get mad? I don't know why, but I'm like, why are you there? And I get all suspicious. I'm like, are you here scoping out my house? And I start thinking really evil things. I don't know why. But Mohinder, there are all these cars in front of his house. He's like, hey, I don't mind. It's a great party. I mean, he must be the kind of guy that's on the fast lane. And when people are going slow, he don't give. He's cool about it. Me, I pray that person out of that lane. I'm like, Lord, in Jesus' name. You know, I'll do all sorts of crazy crap like that. I mean, what's wrong with me, right? He's a better person than me. I know it. He's probably more patient than me. All that stuff. He's certainly nicer than me. Why? This is the kind of humility that the gospel gives you. See, you don't look at the world and say, wow, look at these bunch of evil people. No. Yeah, you need the grace just as much as they need. And so this kind of gospel, that you're only saved by grace, only promotes a kind of humility where you look at another person and say, you are actually probably a better person than me. It's the only faith that I know. That does this. Here's the second thing. The resurrection of Jesus leads to prosperity. And what that means. And I'm not talking about personal prosperity, but the prosperity that we long to see in this world. And religion says the world doesn't matter. The world is just going to hell. All that matters is heaven and afterlife. And that's, if that's what you believe, and most religions believe that, then all that matters is for you to convert people and to grow your tribe and just wait until... You know, you go to heaven. Who cares about the world's problem? It's all going to pot anyway, is what you would think. But if the purpose of the resurrection, listen, Christians, is a new heaven and new earth, it's a transformed world where death, where poverty and injustice and suffering are gone, then you and I are working with God to make this world a better place. And this is why in Jeremiah 29, God says to the children of Israel this. He says, go into the wicked pagan city of Babylon and seek its peace. Seek its prosperity. Make it a great city for them to live in. Work for the prosperity of the city. And this kind of gospel doesn't just humble you, but it thwarts you towards being a solution for making your community, your city, a better world. So therefore, fight injustice. Go eat at your local eatery. Serve the city. Feed the poor. Fight for injustice. Transform a city. Because that's exactly what God is up to. And third, the deity of Jesus brings about a radical inclusivity. You see, Jesus is not just another prophet or teacher. It says he's God in the flesh. Now, somebody might say, well, if you think Jesus is like, the founder of your faith, and he's God, aren't you saying that he's better than everybody else? You know, because everybody else is just a mere mortal man. And Jesus himself, he's not like Buddha. He's not Muhammad. He's a God himself. Doesn't, doesn't that lead you to even greater self-righteousness? You would think so, right? But history tells us a different story. See, one of the greatest paradoxes of history is that when early Christianity actually began to grow in its early days, it was the Greeks and the Romans that had this, what it looked like, a very inclusive faith because they, they believe in pantheism, which is a belief that all things could be God. Like you have your God in the air, you have God in the tree, all of creation is God. Everybody could have a God, is great. Or, or a polytheist where like, you know, whatever your joys are, a, a God of wine, a God of sex and God of this and God of that, and you get to all have a God. And so it seemed very inclusive. But the fact of the matter is, that Christianity created the most inclusive community in the world, that the world has never seen up until that point in history. Nobody's ever seen anything like it. You see, the Greeks and the Romans did not mix um, rich and the poor. They were very status-oriented, but the Christians did. You know, Jews didn't mix races, but the Christians did. Why would such an exclusive view and belief that Jesus is God, he's the only way, he's the only truth, he's the only life, Um, this most exclusive faith create the most inclusive society. How would that happen? Well, in the first century, the early Christians saw that Jesus was God and that he created all things, that he was all supreme, that he was not somebody who was being condemned for something wrong or even a person who was being condemned wrongfully. He was God, the king of all kings himself, laying on a cross, And upon the cross, though he had the power to judge, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. A kind of humility from an almighty God that would do this. They're like, who is this man? Who is this man? You know, my mother, you know, she suffered from liver cancer, which ultimately took her life. But along that journey, there was a moment in which we were waiting and waiting for a liver transplant, and there was just no organ available. And she was near the end of her life, and the only thing that would save her is to actually do a transplant. But we had heard from our doctor that, um, that you could actually do a partial liver transplant. A liver is like a unique organ in that if you harvest from a healthy liver, a portion of it, a partial liver, and then implant it in there, liver that that health will fully grow a healthy liver and so my brother and I we just were very eager to get into the front of the line and say test us test us to see if our liver is good and unfortunately we got a biopsy and we did everything and we didn't qualify as the right match and none of our family and friends would actually be available to do that and so I remember coming home from one of those appointments and I just laid in front of my mother's lawn and I just felt really dejected and hopeless. And I sat there just crying and saying, God, what are you doing? Why are you going to take my mom? And then her neighbor, right across the house, so a big African-American woman, comes by and says, son, what's wrong? And I look up and see her and I say, leave me alone. And she says, no, what's wrong? And I said, my mom's gonna die. She's gonna die because she can't have anybody who would donate a liver that would be a fit for her. My liver doesn't work, my brother's won't work either. And so that's the end of it. And she goes, can I donate the liver? And I was like, what? You would actually donate your liver for your neighbor and she's like you said yours don't work right maybe mines do i'm like you would do that fast forward the story she actually went through you know getting all the pokes and prodding and you know at the end of the day her her liver didn't match either but i remember at that moment i'll never forget i said who are you that would be so charitable so kind I was moved to tears, her charity. I was moved to tears, her sacrifice. And if you're a Christian this morning, I want you to compel you because many people, as I've told this story for the last two services, have come and said, man, that that story makes me cry. I'm like, that lady makes you cry? How about the life of Jesus for you? Does it make you cry? (laughs) Because he didn't just offer you an extension of your life. He didn't offer you his liver. He offered you his blood and all of it. And he offered you his eternal life, the fellowship with the Father. And the only way he could do it is to live a perfect life and to be sacrificed for you, give it to you. And so does that move you? Does that make you say, who is this guy? And this is what the early verse first century Christian saw. Who is this man who would do this? He's the king of all kings. He would do this for me? And the answer is yes. And if you're not a believer this morning, he's making that available to you too. It doesn't matter how long you've been an unbeliever, It really doesn't matter how long you've resisted. The fact that you are here is a voice that you're, being, you're hearing to say, come to me. Come to me. I have died for you. I have laid down my life. And there's no sacrifice in this world that is like the sacrifice of mine. And so if you were to say, who is this man? I don't know, but I want to know more of him. Continue to come to this series. But if you're ready even today to say, you know what, I know enough. I will follow that guy wherever he goes. And I just need mercy. Jesus, have mercy on me. I want to tell you the best news in the world. He does. He has given you this mercy, and through that power will make you the most inclusive, selfless, resurrection-powered people that I think will bring about unity in this divisive world. Let's pray. Christ, we love you and thank you for the hope that we find in you, And we believe that the unique features of Christianity is really the solution for this world. So rather than eradicating uh, religion or to make all religion equal, Father, the deity of yourself, the salvation by grace, and your desire to renew and your plans to renew this world is the very thing that we need. Father, as Christians, I pray that you will make us even more humble, that we would be all the more inclusive, After all, you didn't pick us because of our body shape, our body type, or because of our personality or GPA. You have selected us because we cried out mercy, because we needed you. You have chosen us. Father, I pray that you would choose many people here today, those people who say, I need you too. And Father, that in society, Christians will be known as the most gracious, inclusive people who believe in this exclusive Jesus, because you are the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Thank you for bringing us to the Father, only through you. We glorify you today in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior and our King, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Can we give him glory today? Hallelujah, amen.